happy July, folks. Glad to be with you in the mid-summer. Hopefully you can listen in as you are soaking it, soaking in the rays or out on the lake or uh, hiking a mountain or on a cruise, whatever you're doing for your rest, relaxation and rejuvenation. I'm hoping that we can share a little time with you as we head towards uh, the opening of our next school year. Glad to be with you. And we're doing a very different episode this time. Um, I'm, those of you who follow us will be surprised. We're totally changing the routine. My um, scheduled guest had a family emergency and could not make it uh, due to uh, uh, illness in the family. And um, we waited kind of to the last minute anyway, because um, Dr. Charlotte was traveling abroad and uh, got back and was hit with um, a family emergency. So uh, our OG series has been put on pause. Our original educator series, we will resume um, when uh, the family works through uh, this this uh, emergency. And we certainly have prayers and hopes for a healthy recovery for the family member um, as we say this. So Dr. Charlotte, be with your family and we understand and uh, we would go to plan B. That's what we do. So I thought I would take the opportunity to just do something a little different um, outside of the quote unquote, hearing about people's journey to responsiveness. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. In short, in case you want to know, should you hit stop right now, you're going to get me for the whole time, okay? You're just going to get me. So hopefully you can uh, tolerate that for the next uh, few moments or so as I kind of work through something here. But before we get to that, let's do what we normally do, which is our affirmations, as you know. So tell your face that you're happy. I had a quote in my head that said that... um, Today is a good day and tomorrow is going to be a better day, right? Regardless of what you're going through, that's the way we have to look at it. And so when we put that smile on our face, it's really just saying, you know, whatever is happening, I'm going to make it through and life is good even when it's not, right? So uh, I'm hoping that, you know, you are at least able in spirit and heart to do that no matter what you're going through, knowing that. knowing that you can work with it. We all going through something, trust me. (laughs) Then we want to do an affirmation um, to give give yourself some love. And, you know, I just want you to say to yourself, and I'm kind of, you know, uh, one of our artists, uh, Lizzo, just came out with an album and uh, the song says, About Time, right? And uh, that's the la- that's the latest hit that was in my head, <laughs> you know, just hearing it over the past couple of days. What What is it for you that it's about time? And I just want you to kind of say that to yourself. And in the spirit of Lizzo, give yourself that self-love and just say whatever it is. It's like, you know what? It's about time. It's about time you got that closet cleaned out. It's about time you wrote that letter to whomever. It's about time you made that move out of that position and into that new position that you wanted. It's about time in terms of personal things or things that you're going through. Just say that to yourself. And I want you to kind of, you know, kind of thump the table or pump your fists in the air and just say, it's about time. And you, what you're really saying is, I got it done. It's, 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 it's over. I, I I did what I needed to do finally. Okay. All right. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say on three and then you're going to say, it's about time. And then whatever it is, of course, you're going to say it to yourself on three, one, two, three, it's, it's about, about time. time. Now, whatever it is, you're saying it to yourself. 
right now. All right. Okay. We want to show love to others as we as we always do. I want to just use it because I know of several situations where people are either dealing with death in their family or illness in their family. In fact, even in my family, uh, I have a cousin who has just experienced an unexpected death. And so let's just show love and support for those who are going through illness issues, issues of death, and just give them our thoughts and prayers. No matter your faith, no matter, you know, whatever, wherever you're coming from spiritually, but just just send uh, send uh, a wave of strength, send a wave of encouragement and send a wave of support just into the, the universe, just into the universe for anyone that we know of personally or and or professionally that's dealing with issues of illness and death at this moment. And so that's how we're going to show our love this time around. All right. Okay, now time for Dr. Holly's two cents. Dr. Holly's two cents. Two cents. Two cents. Don't get it twisted. The two cents that I want to focus on. Two cents. I'm just trying to make the point. Don't get it twisted. Here's the real question. Here's what I've been thinking. Here's what I've been thinking. What I've been thinking. Listen up. The two cents that I want to focus on is really the political climate that we're we're about to enter into. We wrote about it in our 321, if you get that mini newsletter that we send out every second Wednesday. And I really wanna build on it with this opportunity, just to say that we have to prepare ourselves for what's coming down the pike politically as culturally responsive educators, to sit back and think that all you're gonna be able to do is just focus on your teaching, which would be great, would it not? or focus on working with you know, your students like you need to would be very naive. Uh, the campaign of what I call anti-anti-racist, anti-CRT, whatever that is. But the bottom line is there are political winds out there that want to blow our house of responsiveness down. And they're gonna use any means necessary to do that, mainly through the ballot. Right. And so I'm putting a call out that we all get actively involved politically in some way to begin our own advocacy for how advocacy around how this work is very important. It is very necessary and we have to fight for it. We cannot just sit back, focus on the outrageous love, if you will, and not think that there are certain things that we're going to need to do. So. If you understand that, then the question you should be asking yourself right now is, what is it that I need to do? How do I get actively involved? How do I get engaged? We uh, emailed some some options out in terms of uh, helping with voter turnout, getting people to vote, helping in terms of where if you have voter suppression going on in your community or your area, getting actively involved in those organizations. We talked about even you running for office, <laughs> if you can, if it's not too late, it's probably too late for November. But if you you could you know, take action by running for office, we talked about knowing who is running for your school board, knowing who is running for your city council, knowing who is the local representation that's going to be representing your area, your district, because these are the folks who are actually going to be placing the votes for or against what we're doing. So it's just important that you have that knowledge of them so then you can address them. I mean, you know, you can inform people about who they're voting for, or who they're not voting, or just even for yourself. 
we have to engage, we have to fight, we have to get politically involved. And typically in that midterm election, as you know, meaning between the two, uh, the time between one presidential um, election and the next one, this is when there's low energy, low turnout, low participation, but a lot of key uh, decisions are made. A lot of uh, key positions are, are gained in this interim that then determines what happens up until the next presidential election. So I don't want us sleeping on it, folks, because you know and I know how much our students need this work. The statistics, the data, which I don't put a lot of stock in, though, is showing that a lot of our students have fallen way behind. And the issue is not that they've fallen way behind. The scary part is, will they be able to get the support to catch them up? That's the question. That 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 support is not only just financial, it's not just only in terms of instructional support, but also political support. Um, and so we want to make sure that you are a part of this in any small way. And let's do that good trouble that we've been admonished to do. We want to reach on the other side. We want to have it in a unified way. We want to have it in a joint way. But the forecast is saying it, we may not have that opportunity. We may not have that sort of positionality to be unified. And if that's not going to be the case, then we have to be prepared to fight for the underserved students that we serve. All right. So that's my two cents. Get active, get politically involved. Um, again, in that 321 newsletter, we have some recommendations for you. If you don't get our newsletter, please, please go to the website, culturesponsive.org and just hit the subscribe button and you'll get the blog that we send out during the school year and then the 321 monthly newsletter. Okay, so in lieu of not having a guest, what I decided to do was to offer a recap of something that we did focus on in our blog, which is called VAP Perspectives. And what we did this past year was we focused on 10 myths of CLR that were based around the notion of misinformation, disinformation that we were dealing with last summer around the pushback to so-called CRT. And a lot of it was rooted in just ignorance and just straight misinformation and just straight disinformation. So I, I spent the whole year just trying to dispel myths as they apply directly to cultural and linguistic responsiveness, okay? These are common myths that I hear about all the time um, as I travel the country, working with hundreds of people, you know, and getting getting questions, getting comments, so on and so forth. And I sort of, you know, make my mental notes and have been kind of recording them along the way. And I also put a call out to my peeps to say, what are you hearing out there that are just straight lies, misinformation, uh, disinformation, ignorances, you know, distractions, whatever. And they kind of told me what they were hearing. So I thought in place of our usual interview, I would offer you the 10 myths of CLR that we wrote about for the, this past year. Now, they're not in any particular order, right? Meaning there's not like, a top myth versus, you know, a less myth. They are they're just kind of randomly scattered in here, but I'm going to go uh, from one to 10. And here's myth number one. 
is very appropriate because we're about to start a new school year. This is the myth. You cannot start CLR at the beginning of the school year. Okay. That's a lie. You must start CLR at the beginning of the school year. Just like you roll out all your other procedures, all your so-called rules, all the stuff that you do in the in those beginning days, you should be infusing your CLR into those procedures and protocols. You should introduce call and response. You should introduce how you're going to do discussion protocols. All of that needs to be done like you do everything else. The general rule is that you would have all these things in the beginning steps by the third week of school, and then you would continue to build upon that going forward. Everything should be nice and solid by the eighth or 10th week, right? Meaning your students will have it. Somebody walk in, they got it. I'm giving you a long time out for eight to 10 weeks, but I'm saying within that first three weeks, you should have introduced all the those beginning elements of CLR, particularly around the engagement activities to your students. Some people will say, should I wait till I get control of the room? No, you should not wait till you get to control of the room. CLR is going to help you get control if you believe in it, right? Should I wait until Fridays? No, this is not fun Friday stuff. CLR should be infused to everything that you do from day one. So it is a myth that you cannot start from the beginning. All right, let's go to myth number two. This is the myth. Only teachers who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color, otherwise known as BIPOC, can be culturally and linguistically responsive. This is an annoying myth. And let me tell you why. I can explain it in a lot of different ways, folks. But I want to give it to you just based on a rationale of quantity. If we go on that argument, that only BIPOC teachers can be culturally and linguistically responsive, then we should shut the schools down right now. Because as you know, and I know, you've seen the statistics, let's just take elementary, 80% of the teachers in elementary schools are not BIPOC, right? They're not BIPOC. Maybe a little lower than that now, I'm quoting from a few years ago. So that means that I'm left with only 25 to 30% of BIPOC teachers who could then possibly serve my students. Uh, let me put it to you, Pliny, we're asked out then, right? So that that makes this myth ridiculous just on the numbers game alone, right? The bottom line is in our schools, again, depending on where you are, but for the most part, our students are likely to encounter teachers who are non-BIPOC, okay, or white. That's just the bottom line. So there's no way that we can get at cultural responsiveness from a quantity standpoint if we're only relying on BIPOC teachers, because the likelihood of our students experiencing a non-BIPOC teacher is higher than if they're going to experience a BIPOC teacher. So this is uh, absurd. And we have to gear towards making every classroom culturally and linguistically responsive. That's just the bottom line. Every single classroom, regardless of the race of the teacher, should be validating and affirming who our students are. Period. Period. Now, let me add another part to it. That That's just a quantitative argument, okay? I'm just saying it's just a straight numbers game. But I can go to another argument. The other argument is that all of our skin folk aren't our kin folk, okay? So even when we try to recruit teachers of color, which we should, absolutely, we need more diversity. That's uh, not up for debate. But in cases, sometimes, 
when we do recruit teachers of color, they uh, may not be culturally responsive. In fact, in my own experience, and there is some research to, to back it up, in some cases, the teachers of color tend to be less culturally responsive than some of the non-BIPOC teachers. And this is a major problem. We could do a whole episode on that alone because there's some thought behind why that's the case in terms of internalized oppression. But we'll save that for another time. My point is we cannot say mythically that only teachers of color can be culturally responsive. It's logistically not possible, not realistic. All right. Okay. Myth number three. This is the myth. The celebration of holidays superficially makes one authentically culturally responsive. Now, this is one you've heard before. It's really not new, but it comes up over and over again. And the bottom line is, if all you do is celebrate the months, the holidays, the birthdays, and you never go beneath the surface, then that is actually doing a, a disservice to what we're trying to do with cultural responsiveness authentically, because everybody is going to get into the surface part of it, right? And not realize that there is a deep aspect to our work that must be celebrated as well. So my charge to you is to celebrate culture in any way, every day, no matter how small it is, it's still big, right? And we don't have to always do the big festivals and, you know, the music things and all the food, right? We don't always have to do that. There are very, there are little things that we can do. I always use the Google banner bar as a good example because uh, uh, a few months ago, Google celebrated uh, Luther Vandross, right? Okay, and I was like, now, come on. If Google can celebrate Luther Vandross, we can find a way to celebrate culture every single day in any kind of way in our schools. And we don't have to wait on Black History Month. We don't have to wait on Hispanic Heritage Month. We don't have to wait on Women's History Month. We can find a way to celebrate culture every day. And I famously have said, if all you do is celebrate Black History Month, then you are actually doing a disservice to our students because we're letting them know that they're only important for one month, right? And we want them to know that they're important every month. So there are a lot of ways that you can um, celebrate culture every day in any way. We give some examples in, the, in, that, in that edition of this myth. And again, you can look it up in our FAB newsletter. Just go to our website, culturesponsive.org and subscribe to the newsletter and you'll see the back issues as well. All right, myth number four. CLR is just about the activities and nothing else. This is, again, another one that's kind of annoying because our professional learning experiences are very interactive. They're very engaging, as reported by participants. I'm not, I'm not tuning my own horn on that. But the problem with being so engaging, sometimes people come away with the thought that what they've seen modeling of call and response, modeling of response and discussion protocols, movement activities, it's all that it's about. And if you just do those things, you're good. And that and that's annoying. It's a like it's like coming from a concert and then you're only singing one of the songs that the artist sang when there were a whole host of songs and there's a whole album and there's a whole body of work. 
And then all you're doing is just singing the same old song, the, the one song over and over again, but then telling people that you all about this artist and when all you're doing is singing that one song, right? So to say that CLR is just about the activities is, is a myth. And if all you're doing is call and response, I mean, literally, if that's all you're doing, you have missed the point and are hurting our work because this is why some principals go through their schools and they're like, they're going through their building and they're saying, oh, my teachers are doing it, Shiraki, because they're they're all doing call and response. Come on, we got to turn the page, right? You have to do more than call and response. You have to do more than discussion protocols. You have to do more than response protocols. And I know that those are the things that engage people, right? It brings people into the tent. That's the intention. The same will work for your students, right? They will get hooked in just like you got hooked in. But once you get hooked in, you got to take them somewhere. You can't just leave them there. And so we don't want the myth to be out there that CLR is just about the activities and nothing else. And if you believe in that, you're not you're not truly down with CLR. And if you're not moving beyond those protocols, you're not truly down. And for those of you who are sitting there going like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about right now then you need to learn a little bit more about what we're doing and how we're engaging with classrooms by focusing on instructional practices. This is not a bucket of activities, as I read one critic say. CLR is just a bucket of activities. It's not just a bucket of activities. It's much more than that. And I'm not even getting into the strategy part of our work and we're focusing on the cultural behaviors, right? All of that, you know, is, is in our professional learning experiences. All I'm saying is simply, if all you're doing is call and response, it's a problem. All right, let's go to myth number five. Myth number five says, if CLR ain't talking about race, then it ain't woke enough. Now, this is the one that we've dealt with over and over again, because in CLR, we have a focus on culture, not a focus on race. Does that mean that we do not talk about race? No. And that's the lie. That's the myth. That's the disinformation. But does that mean we're race hawks about it? No, we're not race hawks about it. We do think that there's a place to talk about race, obviously, right? We don't even have to go over that. We're trying to create a space, though, for just talking about culture. The problem is some people can't chew gum and walk at the same time, right? Or they are trying to push an agenda specifically that is race, that's that's race based, which I call being race hawkish, right? And so what we're saying is that CLR broadens the conversation beyond race, right? But you must have the conversation about race to move beyond race. But once we start talking about culture, we don't want to conflate it or confound it with race. And that's what we're adamantly defending, right? And we can do that at the same time, acknowledging the institutional racism, acknowledging the anti-racist policies and practices that are pervasive in our schools, we can do both at the same time. And to be forced to make a choice is actually working against all of us. And I've been told by teachers that, well, my district, you know, they want to just talk about race. And if you bring up culture, you get, you know, slammed down. And if you're not talking about white fragility, they get mad at you and all these different things. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with those things, but we can do both, folks. We can do both. In fact, we need to do both, right? We need conversations about race. I, I was I was a contributing author to a book, Conversations About Race. But we need to focus on culture because race has nothing to do with culture. That's the point we're trying to make. And our students are cultural beings. They are their cultural selves that need to be validated and affirmed. 
as I say, the district, when they give me their racial demographics, they'll say, oh, we're we're 80, we're 75% this, 10% that. And I go, what, okay, now what am I supposed to do with that information? Now that I know that you're 75% this race, am I supposed to like play different music during the presentation? Um, should I make a special order for food on my menu? Like, what, what am I to do with that information? No, I need to know who your students are culturally right? I need to know how you're validating and affirming them from a youth culture standpoint, from a gender culture standpoint. How are you dealing with issues of transgender with your transgender students? These are the issues that we have to get into. And that's why we focus on culture. So we totally, totally uh, nix this myth because if CLR ain't talking about race, it actually does not mean it ain't woke enough. I'm saying it's more than woke, whatever that is. I don't even know what that is. It's more than woke. Myth number six. Myth number six. The myth is you need 100% buy-in. And here's the, here's, this is a big myth. I call it the desire myth. Of course, we want everybody to buy in. We want everybody to be a part of it. We want everybody to participate. We want everybody to, to be engaged. Hey, I want my kids to always eat all their vegetables. Guess what? It ain't going to happen. And we need to let it go. It is a desire, 100%. I desire to lose 25 pounds because uh, the doctor said it'll help with my blood pressure, right? It's, <laughs> I, I, mean, I ain't gonna say it ain't gonna happen, but it is unlikely at the way I'm going right now, right? So what I'm saying is we got to deal with reality and the reality is we're not gonna get 100%. We're not. My estimates based on research, once again, is that you're always gonna have about 10% of the group who are gonna be non-believers need to just face it. And we need to find ways to deal with these folks that is outside of the fact of begging them, cajoling them, keep telling them the same thing over and over again, sounding like a broken record, and allow them to share their beliefs, share their space, uh, share their uh, position. But then I say, put them in the control group. That's my stance. I tell them, look, we're going to try some outrageous love. You keep screaming at the kids. You keep microaggressing the kids. You keep uh, grading them down we're going to try something different. And then we are going to compare notes. We're going to compare our, our notes to your notes. And when we, and when we do that, then we're going to have to have a different conversation. So you're going to have 10% that the research says, and then maybe another 10% who are doubters, if you will, you know, they're kind of on the fence, they're unsure, they're skeptics, that's all good. And we have to address their questions. We have to answer their questions. We have to address their issues. And the good news is, folks, when we do that with the skeptics, they typically will buy in. That's the good news. The problem is we don't do a good job of addressing their questions. We don't do a good job of addressing their issues. And so they turn off, right? These are the people who are raising valid, good, critical questions. And then they get accused of being racist or they don't, you know, believe in, you know, and it's like, no, I just had a, I just had a, I just have a, I just have a question. I like teachers like that, to be honest with you, because it shows me that they're thinking. It shows me that they're critical thinkers. I don't want the teacher that just go like, oh, okay, whatever you say. That's that's not the teacher we want in terms of doing this work. We want someone who's going to challenge. We want someone who's going to push back. Hard minds in the right place, though, right? So when when the skeptics raise their questions, we can't just put them in one big category with the non-believers, right? 
So I want you to make sure that you are addressing the critical questions, you are addressing the comments so that people will then have reasons to buy in. So that myth that says you need 100% buy-in, don't go for it. It's not true. If you have at least 60%, you can get this going. I mean, the desired percentage then would be 80%, but we can do it with 60%. Now, if you're below 60%, we got some tilling of the soil to do, as uh, Dr. Muhammad would say. Okay, let's go to myth number seven. CLR is a silver bullet. This is a big myth, folks. These are the folks who think that CLR is supposed to fix everything. My lights don't work and, the, you know, the, the, the bathroom's always closed and, you know, we need, they make us park too far. Can CLR fix that? Uh, as I say in my presentations, if I haven't disappointed you, this may be the disappointing point. CLR can't fix the fact that you have to park far, okay? More seriously, though, these issues are raised typically around what I would call students that are very, very hard cases in terms of either trauma, mental health. They're just outstanding issues going on and people get hooked by the validation affirmation bug and now all of a sudden they think they can use that bug to help students who have extreme situations. And it's just not true. This is not a magic bullet. This is not a silver bullet. And we should use CLR to work with the students as a prevention to intervention, as a pre-store to restorative, right? That's how we should be looking at this. We want it to be used for the students who, if you validate and affirm them, they won't go to the extremes. They won't end up in the extremes, right? So it's, it's meant to be a preemptive strike and the fact of the matter is a lot of our students aren't being validated and affirmed early on, early on, and then it leads to other issues down the line, right? This is why, this is why I, you know, I believe in trauma-informed, but how we're using it, I'm a little, I'm a skeptic, right? Because my thing is, how are you going to talk about trauma-informed when the school is causing the trauma? And part of that trauma is not being validated and affirmed, being told that your culture is bad, being told that your culture is wrong, being told that your behaviors, which are cultural, are disruptive, right? And you keep hearing that over and over and over. That's trauma. That's trauma right there, right? But yet, when we talk about the students who are who are who have been traumatized and it's external, right, we don't want to look at how we may be internally traumatizing our kids by how we're teaching them. So- this is how we're going to look at CLR in the context of, I'm going to say, intervention in extreme situations. But it can't fix everything. We need our mental health professionals. We need our counselors, the food services. All of these things come into play to give our students holistic support. And when you look at CLR and say, oh, it can fix this, it can fix that, then that's a myth. So you have to be strategic in your use of CLR and know who are the students that if we don't be culturally responsive with them, then it could create problems down the line. But once those problems have developed, it's harder then to use the CLR. And that's why it's not a silver bullet. Let's go to myth number eight. To ask this question, is CLR effective? This is a way of trying to shoot holes or throw darts at culture responsiveness by asking this question, well, is it effective? Where's the research? I, I'm just giving you the voice that I hear all the time. 
And the bottom line is it's not a fair question in the first place because my point to folks, and I'll give it to you twofold. The first one is that before we can even ask that question, we need to ask, has CLR been implemented with fidelity? And the bottom line is we don't do that prerequisite assurance before then trying to apply the research. We don't institutionally take the time and effort to know if it has been implemented with high fidelity in the first place. And I think that if we're going to talk about it from a quantitative, you know, this sort of psychometric research perspective, then we all know that you spend a lot of time working on the implementation phase or the application phase before you then begin to ask questions around effectiveness. And I'm saying institutionally, we have not given CLR that due diligence in terms of the high fidelity part. Not only that, there are many versions of cultural responsiveness. And by even looking at it as a blanket term, to me, negates any valid research because there are different types of cultural responsiveness. And the question is, one question maybe we should be asking is, does one type work better or differently than another type? If, if some districts subscribe to this particular theorist versus another theorist, how does that look different in terms of the practice? These are the questions that we should be asking. But trying to use the notion of research is really a sideswipe to try to say this isn't effective, so we shouldn't be using it, which is bullshit. I'm sorry. That's the best way I can say it. So that's, that's number one. Number two has to do with this issue of there's so many variables that come into play. Even if you're using, you know, quantitative research, how can you then even single out what is the one or two variables that are the contributing factors to its effectiveness or not? Because so much of it is qualitative, it's hard to then quantify. And this is why I love Hattie, just like all you other Hatties out there, right? I'm talking about the Hattie research, right? Which is like, you know, all these great meta-analyses, which is, which is really great. And I know there are a lot of Hattie certificated people out there, but I love using a Hattie research against the people who then say we should do CLR. CLR needs to be done in an effective way. Let me tell you why. If you read the Hattie book, it says that we have to look at mediating factors that impact achievement, you know, in terms of student achievement. Well, mediator factors are those, those things that don't, do not directly affect achievement. They indirectly affect it. And when you look at those variables as identified by Hattie, then you can make a stronger connection to CLR's effectiveness. One, for example, is relationships. We know that strong relationships with students is going to affect student achievement. There's no doubt about it, right? Well, CLR, validating affirming, affects relationships. So it has an indirect impact. And what I'm saying out there to all you so-called researchers, we don't need to be studying this in terms of student achievement per se. We need to be studying this in the context of how does CLR affect student relationships? That's how we need to be studying this. I'll give you another one. Coming from Hattie. Now I'm 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 using your stuff. Y'all, y'all stuff, y'all have these big conferences about research and all this, and you quote the meta-analyses. I'm using your stuff. Engagement. Student engagement has a direct impact on student on achievement. 
Well, guess what has an impact on student engagement? CLR. So we need to be studying levels of engagement in relation to CLR, right? Not saying this mythical question, is it effective or not? Do you have any research? What we do know is it has a positive effect on relationships, has a positive effect on student engagement. The third one, in case you want to know, is teacher efficacy, right? Teachers feel better about their teaching. They feel more confident. They feel like they can do what they came to do in this work. So that's another area. It's, it's teachers' sensibility of success and confidence and empowerment. That's another area that CLR has a positive impact on. So no more questions about CLR effectiveness, unless you're going to show me that it has been highly implemented with fidelity and we can look at relationships and engagement. All right, let's go to myth number nine. Myth number nine says there is no time to do CLR, right? I don't have time. I got, a, I got, I got content, I got standards, I got pacing schedules, um, so on and so forth. Once again, this is a myth. This is because people look at CLR as an extra thing to do, and it's not an extra thing to do. It is to be infused into everything that you do, right? And I use the example of just like you get up in the morning and brush your teeth, you have to put CLR into everything that you do. The reason why I use uh, toothbrushing is because literally it takes like two minutes to brush your teeth. And I'm saying CLR works the same way. Yeah, you may have to spend a little time to prepare. You have to make a little time to plan. But once you do it, it's done and it's infused into everything that you do. The other point that's missed with this myth that there's no time is how are you spending the time anyway? You We are assuming you're spending the time in an effective way that is of benefit to your students in the first place. I, you know, I think that's arrogant, actually, right? Not to, not to consider the fact that if you infuse the CLR, it's going to make your time more effective, more efficient, more engaging, more beneficial for your students. So in this case, it's worth the time. That old saying, spending time not to save time, but spending time to be better. So let's just call it what it is. It's an excuse. It's another way not to do this work by saying, I don't have time. I got pacing schedules. I got standards. I got to get to this. I got to get to that. When you say that, you're not accounting for the fact of how you're getting there for your students. It doesn't matter if they're bored, if they're engaged, if they're with you or without you. When do you stop and consider the process? And CLR is meant to help you do that. Consider the process. So you do have time. You just, you just got to be willing to take it and be willing to see the benefits. All right. Drum roll, please. But not really. Uh, this is not like Dave Letterman's top 10. You remember Dave Letterman's top 10? We're not trying to do that. Okay. Myth number 10. I teach PE. Why do I need CLR? And these are for the folks that are sitting in the audience who thinks that this doesn't apply to them. Yep, I'm calling out my PE brothers and sisters, physics, auto shop, whatever. Y'all see you right now. You in the back of the room, right? All wearing the same t-shirt, thinking y'all looking cool. Yeah, I see you. And you looking at me and you're saying, this don't apply to me, bro, right? Well, I hate to tell you this, but if you are teaching, it does apply to you. If you are instructing, it does apply to you. If you are engaging or relating to students, it does apply to you. And it's unfortunate that you can't see it that way. Now, I'll be honest with you. Let's keep it real. I'm not saying you got to do everything in the exact same way that we're trying to roll it out. But there are some things that you can do. And that's what you and I have to figure out or you and your department or you and your leadership has to figure out. 
But to sit in the back of the room with your arms crossed, uh, with the chair leaned against the wall and tell me that this doesn't apply to me, uh-uh, it does apply to you. And so CLR is content agnostic and it is grade level agnostic. Here's the criteria I'm teaching. Here's the criteria I'm instructing, right? And so if you're doing those things or you have students before you, you can apply outrageous love. You can do the validated farming and building and bridging. So once again, folks, if we really look at this myth, it's another excuse. It's another reason not to do this work. And those of us who are promoting it, advocating it, teaching it, we want to let you know we see through that and we're here to support you. But you got to ask the question. You got to believe that it can work for you. And so I would ask you to get off the wall, raise your hand and say, I teach PE. How can this apply for me? To be honest with you, I've seen some of the best teaching of CLR in PE classes. There are some things that are already built in, like the movement is already built in. So it's important that you begin to look for those opportunities and not just sit in the back of the room and say, this doesn't apply to me. So those are our 10 myths for CLR, folks. I hope that you can take one or two uh, and just play them for folks. When you hear these myths, that's why I'm giving this to you as a resource. And when you hear it come up in your work and your conversations, just cue up the, the podcast and say, hold on, I just want you to listen to uh, this three minute uh, riff on uh, this myth right here because you just did it right now, right? And our goal was to dispel these myths because they are rooted in disinformation, misinformation, distractions to keep us off focus from doing our work but also to promote this craziness around the anti-CRT and the anti-anti-racist stuff, which we have to combat with logic, knowing though that we can't reason with the fool. All right. So thank you. Thank you for listening in and for listening into a very special episode. It's our first time doing this. Our guests could not make it due to a family illness. And so we're hoping that we can get Dr. Charlotte back at another time. Enjoy the rest of your summer or July, I should say. As some of you will be going back in just, a, I, know, I know some schools are going back at the end of July, beginning of August. So enjoy the rest of your time, get it all in. And we look forward to engaging with you in August as we start a brand new series. I'm not gonna tip it off though, but it's going to be on a position that we have not focused on um, uh, in the totality yet. So that'll be fun to kind of engage with these folks who are very, very important to our work. All right. I want to dedicate this episode just in prayer in terms of my family. A husband of a, of a second cousin just uh, unexpectedly had a heart attack and unfortunately passed away. And uh, so I wanted to just throw some love out to my cousin and her family who's experiencing you know, a very tough time right now. So I just want to dedicate this episode to them. And again, for all who are dealing with sick and death, that you have our thoughts and prayers. Stay safe.